as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. Uh, Looks like our church comes to the 11 o'clock service now, not the 9 o'clock service. If you want a good seat, come to the 9 o'clock service. Uh, Every week, 9 o'clock, we're worried we're going to have to cancel church. Uh, So it's nice to know that someone still wants to come to church. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, this is an exciting day for us today. We've got uh, our back school bash tonight, 5 to 7. We will be descended upon by hundreds of children, middle school age. So pray. Uh, middle schoolers, man. Um, but it should be a ton of fun. I promise high-quality hot dogs and school supplies if you need it. Uh, one of the reasons, if, if you were a member here and you noticed uh, we changed some of our budget stuff last year, uh, we used to do this big drive to buy all the school supplies, but um, just our regular giving has uh, grown by 15% or so the last two years. And, and one of the things we wanted to try this year is if the church paid for all of the stuff, just out of our regular giving. And then that frees us up, our active service, or the way we participate in the event is by showing up and getting to know folks. Uh, we don't want to just be a church that is known for giving away free stuff, but we want people come blown away by the, the love they felt, how welcome they felt. Uh, and also, if you notice, uh, the, the building is a little confusing right now. It's under construction, as it were, um, which if you're looking at this, like, man, they really want to make sure that they know the bathrooms are under construction. Um, we're not trying to say that by building new bathrooms, we're building the kingdom of God, um, though a case could be made, yeah? Indoor plumbing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is some set decorations for Vacation Bible School that's coming up. Uh, we're, so our hope is, the way we've set this up is that uh, all these kids will come today, and then they're getting a free invitation uh, to VBS. It's, there's no charge. It's, again, all the curriculum, all the stuff is paid for by our members and the folks who give here. And so we want kids tonight to get a little taste of life with God, good hot dogs, good music, free school supplies, and then they'll get an invitation to Vacation Bible School, which happens every night this next week. And uh, we're, we're just excited. We're thankful to God for the privilege we have of serving our neighborhood in practical ways and hopefully building relationships. So if, if you plan on coming tonight, which I really hope you do, five to seven, look for people who seem a little lost, uh, help them around, let them know where stuff is, but also let them know that they're welcome here, that we're, we're thankful that they're here. And uh, let's see what we can do to go above and beyond and let them know that we're welcomed, or that they're welcomed here. So I'm excited. It's going to be a great week. It's going to be a busy week. Pray for the staff. Uh, They won't, particularly Kristen. She has two kids, so she doesn't sleep anyway. Um, So she won't sleep even more this week, but there's just a lot going on. So uh, it's an exciting time. We're thankful for God for the opportunity that we have. Uh, For me personally, I get excited about stuff like this because um, 
Part of my job, when you're a professional Christian, people ask you to perform wedding ceremonies for them. And I like seeing couples that I've gotten to do their wedding ceremony, then have babies, and then the babies grow up. And it's really cute and sweet. Uh, I got thrown in the deep end with weddings. I had a really dramatic ordination ceremony where uh, Chad Lewis, some of you may know him. He's a pastor over at Sojourn's uh, East Campus or the location in St. Matthew's. Uh, There was a panic Nobody could perform this wedding that was coming up in a couple of weeks. So next to a copier in Sojourn's old offices, he put his hand on my head and said, I I ordain you in the name of Jesus. Go do this wedding. It was very uh, meaningful. um, And I've been been performing weddings ever since. And I've I've learned that... uh, one of, one of my favorite parts, one of the most telling parts about meeting with a young couple, it gives you lots of insight into uh, what are their expectations for their wedding, uh, where they coming from, is when we come to the conversation around vows. What are your vows going to be? And the first red flag that goes off, the warning bells, are when the couple says, we want to write our own vows. And just to be clear here, I've performed some of your weddings. I'm going to use some sample vows here in a second. And it's more so my uh, summary of the people who want to write their own vows. I'm not like exactly quoting anybody. So if this is you, it's not really you, but maybe it's accidentally you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But you can tell the couples that like watch too many Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks movies or like read Twilight too much or, or whatever, because their vows are just so over the top dramatic and unrealistic. So they go, usually they go something like this. Um, Babe, <laughs> you know, it starts with real romantic language. Babe, uh, I vow to passionately love you like a California wildfire every day of my life. I vow to rub your feet every night before bed, and I will serve you with a love deeper than the oceans. Every morning, I will bring you fresh squeezed lemonade, and from this moment on, everything I do will be for you. <laughs> and when they give me their first draft, my response is usually something like, man, give that a week, bro. <laughs> Talk to me on day seven. Um, there's, there's, it's obvious in the, in the young folks, but it's not exclusive to them. There's, there's something in our culture that's drawn to the dramatic, uh, that, that really desires the extravagant. So if it's bigger, it's better. If it's flashier and more impressive, then it must be more substantive or, or more worthwhile. Uh, I, I hear all the time about guys when they're trying to like express their love for their wife or their fiance. They're like, man, I would take a bullet for her. Because uh, that happens all the time, right? Like, you got to be prepared for that, guys. Uh, I was talking to Pastor Lachlan this week, and we want to start reframing that a little bit. And we're looking for guys that would take a sword for their wife. One, how much more interesting of a story is that? Where are you? Why do you have a sword? But then also think a bullet. I mean, that's like two seconds of courage, but a sword, you know, it's just a little bit longer of a situation that you got to deal with. So we got all these guys that will make these huge extravagant promises about all these things they'll do for the. I'll take a bullet for my wife, but I won't take out the trash for my wife. You know, I... I I'll take a bullet for my wife, but I won't come home from work early and help out around the house. We're drawn to the big, to the flashy and the noticeable. Uh, I really like the vows that we encourage folks to use when they get married here at Sojourn uh, because people have been working on them for a few thousand years now. Um, And so I just want to, here's a sample 
of what we, we encourage folks to say. I take you, that's I blank, take you blank, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. This isn't everyday love. Uh, this is a, a come what may love. Like, they're pretty ordinary in one sense. Um, if you're sick, I'll love you. And if you're well, I'll love you. If you're rich, I'll love you. And if you're poor, I'll love you. If things are good, I'll love you. And if things are bad, I'll love you until we're dead. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm here. So in, in one sense, it's, they're pretty ordinary promises. It's not a lot of flowery, dramatic language. But if you step back, you ever meet somebody who's been married for like 40, 50 years, and you're just like, how did you make it? Like, how have you done this? It seems so remarkable and incredible. So this, this lifetime of everyday ordinariness results in this totally extraordinary, confusing thing called marriage uh, that, that blows us away when we see it. It's so unusual in our day and age now. Uh, this kind of love, this ordinary, everyday, long-haul love is what the Bible calls faithfulness. And it, it's not a very sexy word. Like, you, if you turn on pop music or the radio, you're not going to hear all these songs about like, babe, I'm going to be so faithful. You know, like there's, it's not a, a, a word that we lift up. It's not a word that we're very uh, attracted to. It doesn't have a lot of sizzle in the pan to it. But at the same time, it's one of our deepest longings as human beings. To be faithful means to be trustworthy and dependable means to be firm in your resolve. But it also means to be these things over a long period of time. Uh, just because you showed up to your first day of work on time doesn't make you a faithful employee. You, you can't flip a switch and all of a sudden be called faithful. It's a, it's a long time of doing the same thing and showing up to build this kind of reputation. Trust takes a long time to build. And and even though it's difficult and takes a long time, are, are not these qualities what we desire most in our relationships? Not just with your spouse, but with people in general. Someone who will show up when they say they show up. To have the kind of friend that you don't have to worry when they said that they would do it. Are they going to do it or not? Do I need to send them a text reminder that they're going to help me move tomorrow? People who show up and are dependable. And isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Don't you want to be known as someone that is there when somebody needs them, that you're someone who can be relied upon? When we come to the Bible, I really like this book, you guys. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and reading about it. Um, have you ever, I hope you've heard it before because I say it all the time. Uh, so this thing, this thing we call the Bible, 60% of it, more than 60% of it is stories, stories and songs. And one of the most consistent themes you'll find in this book is the faithfulness of God. In, in many ways, this whole book is the story of God's faithfulness. It's a picture of his faithfulness, and yet for us, it also explains why faithfulness is so hard for us. And if we're willing to, see, a lot of people, uh, we believe certain things, or we hold certain convictions, and then we come to the Bible to try to use the Bible to support what we already believe. 
You know what I'm saying? Well, this must be true, so I'm going to figure out how to use the Bible to make it true. And we wonder why the Bible gets boring or why it doesn't shape us or impact us. The, the healthier approach is to say, I'm messed up and I'm going to come to the Bible and let it read me. Let it speak into me. Give it a place of authority in my life because it's the word of God. It's not the word of Joe, right? Like Joe's going to give you some life advice. This is God giving us pictures and instructions for how life is meant to be lived. And if we come to the Bible with that kind of approach, it will not only show us that God's faithful and explain why we aren't faithful, but it'll also confront us in ways that will help us lead lives of faithfulness, to, to know Jesus. And we ourselves can become faithful like he's faithful. And so, to start the conversation, I want to start by helping you see this theme in the scriptures, this, this beautiful picture of a God who's utterly reliable and dependable. Uh, it, it's just filled with affirmation of God's trustworthy dependability. It's hard to go a couple of chapters in the Bible without somebody thanking God for being reliable and dependable. Uh, early on in the book of Deuteronomy, early in the, the people of God, their history, uh, they're wrestling with a name for God. And, and listen to what they say. Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What will we call God? Let's call him the rock. Have you ever noticed if you take a rock and set it somewhere, in all likelihood, it will stay there until somebody moves it, right? A rock doesn't go anywhere. It's steady. It's fixed. What you see is what you get. And unless somebody does something to it, it's not going to change. God is a rock. He is a God of faithfulness. He is just. He's reliable. He's dependable. Listen to the songs that they would sing. Psalm 36, we sang it this morning. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Psalm 33, the word of the Lord is right and true. He's faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. Now, before any of you guys get clever, and I don't know how high the atmosphere is, and you're like, well, the earth is 32 miles high, so God's faithfulness is 32 miles high. It says reaches to the heavens, right? That's not what it's saying. Imagine standing on the ground and having to reach up in, into the clouds, right? How far does it go up there? It's, it's beyond reach. Uh, I guess this thought is in question, but, it, you know, we mostly believe the earth is round, right? It's a globe. I guess that's debated now. So imagine how far do the clouds go? It goes around and around and around, right? It never ends. What, what are they saying? God's love is unfailing. It never ends. It reaches out into eternity. He is trustworthy and dependable, not just when uh, the going gets tough or not just when the cameras are on. It says he's dependable. He's reliable, trustworthy in all that he does. He's faithful all the time. He's a rock. Take a step back and consider the story of God as a whole. I love how the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. So it doesn't say, in, in the beginning, God woke up. No, there was a time where God existed. Before the beginning, God has always been in perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly happy, perfectly content. They didn't need anything. They weren't lonely. They didn't like run out of movies to play, and so they had to create human beings for something to do. God existed perfectly, and out of the overflow of this perfect community, they, he makes man and woman for the purpose of relationship so that they could share the joy of 
intimate community with God, but also with one another. When we severed that relationship and decided to stop trusting him, he could have pulled the plug. Like for some people, it's a, it's a popular thought in our day that God doesn't know the future and he's just doing the best he can. He's really strong and so he can steer the ship when we screw it up. If, if that was the case, do you realize that when Adam and Eve trusted a snake over God, that God could have been like, all right, watch this. Whew, nothing ever existed. Like, it's just all wiped out. I'm going to wind it back and start it again. Right, well, let's, let's try again. Uh, he doesn't do that, though. He remains faithful to that original mission. He keeps wooing. He keeps inviting us to participate in the joy of relationship with him. He never gives up. He, he never lets go. This is the story of God. Revelation describes Jesus as this way. He's the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. This is saying that that God, that in the beginning God, and if you want to get kind of confused, go back to Genesis 1. It says, let us make men, man in our image. This perfect community of God. Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the beginning. He always was, and he's going to come back. And then Hebrews goes on and describes Jesus this way uh, as well. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So not only has Jesus been a part of this perfect community since the beginning, he's remained the same. He, I like it when people who don't really read the Bible say things like, I don't like the Old Testament God, but I really like the New Testament God. Like God is schizophrenic or something. Like he's changed from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. It's the same God throughout. It's one God who stays the same and is consistent over all time. He's dependable. He's loyal, he's reliable, he's firm in his resolve. And so he's remained committed to us, even when we weren't committed to him. He says, I will pursue you when you're sick and I'll pursue you when you're healthy. I'll, I'll want relationship with you when you're rich and when you're poor. I'll come alongside those who are celebrating and those who are suffering. The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness which begs the question, what is our problem? We were made in God's image. We're made to be like God in so many ways. So what keeps us from being this way that God is? What is the root? What is the source of our lack of faithfulness, our inability to show up for people consistently over a long time? And now the, the safest answer to avoid really thinking about it or having the Bible deal with us is to just say sin, right? If, if you're new to church, here's a pro tip. If the pastor asks you a question, usually saying the Bible, Jesus, or sin will get you off the hook, right? Like one of those is pretty a safe answer. Um, in this case, is sin the root of our faithlessness? Yeah. So stop it, you guys, and go be faithful, right? Like is. Is that the sermon? Can we do better than that? Or can we be a little more specific, get to the root of it a little bit more? I think we can. So the first root in, in my mind is selfish jealousy or what the Bible calls envy or coveting. So think, when, when was the last time you felt that old burning jealousy? Uh, maybe it was when you visited a friend at their new house and had to fake like you're actually excited about how cool their house was and weren't instead really upset about it. Maybe it was when your friend got a promotion and you're like, how does that idiot keep getting promoted? 
I haven't had a raise in three years. And what? Maybe you feel that, that jealousy every time you see a picture of someone's newborn on Facebook. Really? They get a third child and we're still waiting for our first? Selfish jealousy is, is that, that twisted longing that looks at what someone else has and says, that should be mine. I should have that. And if this is not put to death, our souls turn inward. Our lives turn in on themselves. And, and here's what I mean. We focus solely on ourselves, our wants, our desires, what we deserve, what we should have. And we'll create lots of compelling arguments to explain why this is what we're actually entitled to. What this does, though, is it, it turns other people into objects of consumption. You're something that I can use to get the things I'm really supposed to have. It, it robs joy from our lives. It fills our hearts with bitterness because we're constantly discontent, constantly comparing what we have to other people, and constantly feeling inadequate. What's more, why is faithfulness so hard when selfish jealousy is at work in us? It's, it's because we're only loyal to ourselves. The only desire that matters is my desire. The only want that matters is my want. Or as our culture says, you got to look out for number one. This uh, it's intimately related. I don't know if it gives birth to it or not, but so self, we got selfish jealousy on one side and then selfish ambition on the other. This was the original desire that leads, led us astray in the Garden of Eden. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, you know, you're not really going to die if you do what God told you not to do. What will actually happen is you'll be like God. You'll live forever. You'll know good. You'll know evil. In short, the, the, the temptation there was you can be something more than you are. What you are is not good enough. And if you do this, you could be more. This began a family history of trying to make a name for ourselves. One of the craziest, most interesting stories in the Old Testament, for me at least, is the Tower of Babel. And that's where these people say, we're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. We're going to get to the place. Heavens is where God lives. So we're going to get away from our place into God's place on our own strength, by our own power. Because look how smart we are. Look how technologically advanced we are. I, I, this, it's a great story to contradict the notion that back in the day, people were just dumb. Uh, they built a huge skyscraper trying to reach to heaven. And, and the Bible records for us their motivation. Genesis 11, they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous. Everyone will see how great we are. It did make them famous, just not in the way they were expecting, right? Not for their accomplishments, but now they're famous for their foolishness. We'll build this thing and make a name for ourselves. Selfish ambition is the desire to be famous, to prove your greatness, to be noteworthy or memorable. And again, this, this leads us to objectifying other people, not treating them as image bearers of God or as people with dignity and inherent value, but as cogs in a machine of our own greatness. There's this belief that what we are is not enough, and we'll begin using people to try to make ourselves greater. So we'll take advantage of people, we'll manipulate, we'll use to make a name for ourselves. And do you see what both of these have in common? I'm going to take another person and use them for me. 
When you have selfish jealousy or selfish ambition rolling around in your heart, you can't be faithful because faithfulness happens in relationship. It's showing up for someone else over the long haul. And with selfish jealousy and ambition, other people only exist for me. And so the fights in a marriage are all about, you didn't do this for me, you didn't do this for me, you didn't do this for me. I need more of this from you. I need more of this from you. Why don't you do this for me? The, the posture becomes the other only exists for me. And you can't be in relationship that way. We want more than we have, and we want to be more than we are. And then life becomes driven solely by satisfying that hunger. The only person we're faithful to is ourselves. And so what's the way out of that? Is there a way out of that? So first, I want to try to remind us again, faithfulness is a long-haul character trait. Uh, It's not just taking out the trash when you're being yelled at because you shouldn't have, or you should have done it already. It's doing it without being asked for like six or seven years in a row. That's faithfulness. It's, it's not a decision that you make and the next day, look, now I'm faithful. Um, it's a lifestyle that we develop over time, which means we have to learn faithfulness in the ordinary and regular rhythms of life. It seems to me that Most of us want a sprinting faith, and Jesus is interested in a walking faith. Uh, We want like the secret of the use, or come give us this powerful message, pastor, so I can go home totally different. And Jesus is saying, you guys want to walk like 20 miles with me today? It'll take like 18 hours, and I plan on doing that every day for the next 40 or 50 years. It's a much slower pace, which which means we need to learn or we need to learn faithfulness. What does this look like in the ordinary rhythms of our life? And so this, this brings us to the text today. All of that was intro. Welcome to church. Um, this is Jesus' last meal with his friends. Um, and in it, we see these beautiful pictures of faithfulness, uh, rhythms that we can incorporate into our lives. Uh, and, and these aren't rhythms that make us faithful so much as rhythms that ground us in our relationship with Jesus. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of our effort. It's, it's, a, it's something that spills out over a deep awareness, a deep experience of relationship with Jesus. And so the, the first rhythm that I see here is to remember the faithfulness of Jesus. So in the, in the text that we read, first Jesus says uh, his bread, this bread that he takes is like his body. And then after the meal, he takes some wine and says, this is like my blood. Think about the context here. Um, Jesus has literally walked with these guys for three years. They've slept on the ground next to each other. They've gone hungry together. And now Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And in a short while, Peter will deny him. And then he'll be beaten terribly, he'll be left to suffocate on a cross, he'll die, and then he'll spend three days suffering. And yet he remains faithful to his mission. He remains gracious and loving to them. He continually extends forgiveness. The same gospel he preached, he displays and lives out to his disciples, knowing full well what was going to happen. 
And we see the culmination of his faithfulness in just a few hours from this scene when Jesus is hung at a, on a cross to suffocate and die for people who would betray him and deny him and who have been doing so for thousands of years before this. The prophet Isaiah uh, gives us another picture of what Messiah would say, his posture towards fulfilling God's mission. And it's found a long time ago in Isaiah chapter 50. He says this, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a stone, determined to do his will, and I know that I will not be put to shame. Jesus, knowing full well what was before him, had his face set like a stone towards Jerusalem and that cross. He was committed to doing God's mission, which was to rescue you, to adopt you into the family of God. Look to the life of Jesus and see the consistency. See the reliability. Remember his face set like stone. He does not change. He he remained faithful even to the point of death on a cross. So we begin grounding ourselves in relationship with him by remembering how Jesus has been faithful to the mission of God. And that's found in the pages of the scriptures. But knowing the historical truth that Jesus stuck it out, that he was reliable and consistent, is not enough. We have to also remember the faithfulness of Jesus to you. He didn't abstractly remain faithful. He remained faithful to you and for you because of his great love For you, in particular, he endured the cross. And this becomes concrete when we take time to remember Jesus' faithfulness to us, particularly. It's one reason we do communion every week. See, one of the things that selfish ambition and jealousy does is it, it, functionally, it makes us narcissists, right? We're only all about ourselves. And that, combined with pain and suffering, we become so blind to where God is and what he's up to in our lives. For some of us, it's very difficult to see any evidence that God has been faithful to us in this last week. Some of y'all had terrible weeks, and I get that. So we come every week to church and say, here's one reason that you know God has been faithful to you. Remember the bread, that's his body. Drink the wine, that's his blood. How has he come through for you? If you can't think of a way, remember the cross and start there. And if you're willing, your eyes can be opened. Uh, Here's another great question. How has he changed you? Since you've been walking with him, how has he changed you? Do you tell people those stories? You know how desperate some of us are to believe that God is real week in and week out? And when you say, I used to be this way, and now I'm this way, it's this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. And it helps me learn to see how he's been faithful to me too. Are you asking other people for those stories? Do you know that your life is all the evidence you need for the faithfulness of God? It's all there. His hand is there. His presence is there. He's been leading you and guiding you. Are you looking for his evidence of his faithfulness there? Are you looking back on your life to see how God has shown up for you, how he's been kind to you? One of my favorite questions to ask my friends is, what's encouraging you lately? Or how have you seen God at work lately? How has God been showing up for you lately? Are we asking those questions to each other? Do you see that he's been faithful to you? Do you talk about it? Are you actively trying to remember, not just abstractly, God is faithful, 
but working to remember and help each other remember that Jesus has been faithful to you. Let's so make it one more step concrete. The, the last rhythm that I see here is to regularly practice gratitude. So Jesus remained faithful in a story. He remains faithful to these particular disciples. And it's so interesting to me. The last meal that the God of the universe has on earth consists primarily of bread and wine. It's perhaps the most ordinary meal someone could have in that day. And at the same time, remember what is waiting for Jesus. You think the man had some stuff on his mind? We know that he was just praying, and he was praying so intensely that, uh, or he'll pray after this, he was praying so intensely that he started bleeding. His capillaries exploded. That's stress, that's anxiety. It's, it's him anticipating what's coming. The man has a lot on his mind. And it says he took a loaf of bread, and what? He thanked God for it. With everything I've got going on, one of the most simple, ordinary things in life, he says, thank you, God, for the wonder bread, right? It's, it's astounding what Jesus is doing here. And then he goes on to say, 1 Corinthians records his words for us, do this to remember me as often as you drink it. He takes something incredibly ordinary. He thanks God for it. And then he tells us, when you eat and when you drink, eat and drink to remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who I am for you. This is Jesus redeeming ordinary life. Every time you eat or drink, which for most of us is at least once a day, you have reason for gratitude. By practicing gratitude, we learn to see how much God has given to us, how abundantly he provides for us. And this will cause us to realize that in Christ, we have all we need. And do you know what you stop doing when you realize that you have all you need in Jesus? You stop looking over there and be like, I wish I had that. Wish I had that. And instead, you can say, look at all I have. Look at all that he's given to me. And what this will give birth to is the realization that Jesus says, you are enough. The only voice in the universe that matters looked at you and said, I love you so much that I'll live perfectly for you. I'll sleep on the ground for you. I'll skip meals for you. Not only that, I'll die for you and I'll be resurrected for you. Not just to make you a slave or robot, but to make you my brother and my sister. My father wants you so badly that we will go through all of this to bring you into our family. You are enough for Jesus, just as you are. And if you can realize that, then you'll stop feeling so intensely like you have to make a name for yourself. No one may write a book about you, but that's okay if you realize your name is written in the book of life. Jesus has written it down and said, you belong to me. You are mine and you are enough. Cultivating a life of gratitude kills selfish jealousy and selfish ambition. It, it grinds it into dust and it frees the soul. Are you taking time to thank God for the ordinary everyday gifts of life? And I'll be honest, I'm terrible at this. I want my son to be better than me. So when I put him to bed at night, which if you ask me is seven nights a week. And if you ask my wife, it's like once a month, right? Like, so however often I put him to bed at night, we'll be laying there. I'm giving him his back scratchies. And I'll say to him, hey, buddy, what's something happy that happened to you today? What's something you're thankful for today? And my son, the theologian, will say things like, I'm so happy we got goldfish for snack. 
I'm so, Jesus, let me see Grammy and Pappy today. Jesus, let me go to swim lessons this morning. And on, on the one hand, it's like kind of cute and pathetic. And, and on the other, it is so intensely profound. Because for my son, life is a gift. And he sees evidence of God's goodness and kindness to him as best as his little three-year-old brain can. And I'll look at him and I'm like, I want to be like that. I want that kind of gratitude. Are you taking time to thank God even for the ordinary everyday gifts? Are you thanking him for his faithfulness and kindness to you? Can you see it in your life? And I would just plead with some of you who are in awful situations right now, don't let the grief and sorrow blind you to the goodness of God. It's, it's present. It's there. Yesterday, I woke up, and it was like 68 degrees outside when I left my house. And I've been sweating nonstop for like two weeks. And to take that and say, Lord, thank you for just a little taste of clean air. To be thankful doesn't mean you're thankful for everything, right? But there's still little glimpses and tastes. There's plenty of reason that we have to be grateful. Can you see it? If you fight to see it, if you, if you tell people what you're thankful for, if you practice this rhythm, you will experience the glorious gift of the presence of Jesus. You won't conjure up his presence. What you will do is become aware that he's with you all the time. He's always there and he's always blessing. He's always inviting. He's always near to you. And then you'll find that you can start showing up for other people too because this craving you have to have more or to be more over time goes away as you're grounded in the love of Jesus for you. So let's do what Jesus told us to do. Let's remember his faithfulness and let's thank him for it. On the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks for it, he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. I've lived perfectly for you. My face was set like flint through all of the trials and temptations and sufferings, even to the point of death on a cross. God took all of your iniquities and laid it on me. You are free. I've paid for your sin. I've set you free from guilt and shame and fear. This is what I've done for you. Eat this and remember that. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and said, this is what seals your new relationship with God. It's my blood shed for you. It's not your faithfulness. It's not your performance or your promises. It's the blood of Jesus shed for you. Drink this and remember that you're safe with God. Drink this and remember that you're loved by God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what, what will you do with a God who's shown up for you like this? What are you doing in church right now? Do you just stumble here? Are you guilt-tripped in being here? One of your friends has been inviting you over and over and over. Why is that? Could it, could it be that the God of the universe is looking at you and saying, come to me, I'm pursuing you. I've been faithful to you. Can you see the hand of God leading you to bring you here all in hopes that you might see Jesus and find him beautiful? What will you do with a love like Jesus's that pursues you, that woos you, that dies for you, that invites you to come to him and experience new life? Will you trust that kind of love? If you're here and you're a Christian, Let's take just a second before we come forward and ask God to open our eyes for his presence. Ask God for evidence of his goodness so that we might return to him a heart of gratitude. Find something to be thankful for and then come forward, Christian. Our tradition is to rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. A wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it 
and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Uh, there's also stations in the back, so if you're in the back half of the auditorium, you can go back. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready to participate in communion. Let's pray.